You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group, www.americantheatre.org. Good afternoon. Welcome to Offscript, American Theatre's podcast on all things theatrical. Uh, I'm Rob Weiner Kent. My pronouns are he, him. I'm coming to you uh, live from the uh, Lenape lands of Queens, although my background is Irondale in Brooklyn, similar Lenape lands. Um, and I could tell you why in a second, but I'm here with. I'm Gerald Pierce. My pronouns are he, him. I'm the Chicago editor for American Theater. And I am on the traditional homelands of the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi Nations, as well as many other nations who called this their traditional homeland, and today we call it Chicago. It's Friday, January 12th. It's the first, uh, our first offscript of the new year. We're happy to be here. We made it through. We just shipped our winter issue, our print issue, to the, to the printer. So please, to support our ongoing work, but also to get that copy of that issue, if you didn't see our fall issue, go to American Theater. Uh, that's spelled re dot org slash join to support our work and subscribe to our exciting uh, print magazine. It's all about uh, theater training. There's some great stuff in there that you will only see in print at least for a while. And also the complete play script of Jaja's African Hair Braiding by Jocelyn Bia, which you will only ever see in print. You never see that online. So please subscribe. Um, it's been a busy and interesting uh, time, uh, even despite the holidays. Uh, right before the holidays, we uh, but after the last off script, just go through a couple of things we've been writing about. There was a sort of seismic bit of news uh, in the critical space, one area that we cover. Um, and by the way, I should mention, I, I forgot to mention today's podcast. We're talking to Helen Shop in the New Yorker, who's one of our favorite critics uh, and probably should be yours if she's not, she's not already. Um, and also, we have an amazing interview we taped a few days ago with Justin Peck. Director, choreographer, and Jackie Sylvie's jury, who've created a new musical based on Sufjan Stevens' album Illinois. Although they're calling it Illinois, so we can talk about that. Anyway, that's what's in store. But let's talk about a few things we've written. Back to the seismic theater critic news. Peter Marks took a buyout at the Washington Post after uh, about twenty years at that job. Twenty-one years. Um, he's uh, gone. Although I see he's freelancing now. So he said to me, I did an interview with him about it and he said he would considering freelancing but he's taken the buyout uh dc which is a major theater town uh is apparently without a lead critic at their major paper so it it freaked everyone out it freaked everyone out to the extent that our, our friend jason zinneman uh wrote a long facebook post which is basically a complete post uh and we he tweaked it a little bit and we turned it into a a, a quick fire editorial hot take which was basically you know a long overdue sort of cry in the wilderness that theater criticism, if you haven't been paying attention, uh, is is on the ropes in many ways. Uh, it, it's just not getting the readership that it, it should. And this is a problem for the whole theater ecosystem. So I spoke a lot to Peter Marks about that. And Jason also spoke about it. Jason, who grew up in D.C. And uh, uh, as he said, always just assumed there would be a, a, major, a critic at the lead critic at the paper. Can't really assume that in most, most cities in the country anymore. So. Maybe we'll touch on that a little bit with Helen, but uh, we'll probably talk about just the great things she's seen too. Um, speaking of, uh, we'll be talking to Helen a little bit about uh, Under the Radar and other New York festivals, the January festivals. We had uh, Miriam Felton Dansky, a wonderful writer, uh, talk to Mark Russell, who is basically running Under the Radar out of his kitchen, 
but he said that that's good. Uh, and so it, he talked a little bit about what's in store and uh, his partnership with other or arts organizations since the public basically offloaded that uh, uh, that festival, popular festival last year um, due to budget constraints or contraction. Uh, the other Q&A I want to point to is the one I just did, I did before the holidays, but I recently published it with Deeksha Gower, who's the new executive director at TDF, a uh, beloved nonprofit that is most best, best known for the TKTS booth, but runs a lot of other amazing access programs for New York theater and performing arts. And we had a great conversation. Deeksha, as you can read in the piece, uh, we met years ago when she was working at ShowScore and I had just folded stage grade, long story there. But in any case, she's very much in this sort of journalism audience, perception of theater, how do you get new audiences? What does it mean? Space. And so we have a lot of a lot of conversations. And this is our first on the record. So definitely check that out. I'm really excited about Diksha. She's also in the same building as me in the midtown Manhattan. Mm -hmm. JR, what else would do we have? Oh, I, I yeah. I think that's yeah. it for now. Yeah, I just want to bring up a few pieces that have, I don't know, personal connection. Uh, I was in Seattle before I rejoined American Theater, mm -hmm. so it was nice to be able to do our roll call series, continue our roll call series, highlighting the Pacific Northwest. And we have six really great theater makers from that region, all multi-hyphenates in this group. And you'll see ranging from educators, dramaturgs, and lit literary managers, stage manager, playwright, uh, drag performers. It's uh, a really great group highlighting a region that I grew really fond of when I was out there. Uh, and then I want to highlight a couple Chicago things. First, from writer Tina El-Gamal, who wrote about a new program in Chicago called Southside Artists in Sacred Spaces, which is working with artists in sacred spaces like churches and mosques to address the need for affordable and accessible spaces for artists on Chicago's South Side. You can look pretty much anywhere on the internet and see maps of where Chicago's theaters are laid out, and it's downtown in the north side very heavy with theaters and theater spaces and the south and west sides have significantly fewer so it's always nice to highlight programs that are putting in the effort to give theater makers and artists in those underserved areas some space to create and and give back to those communities uh, so really enjoyed that piece and then on a sadder note uh, chicago lost actor mike nussbaum who Many outside of Chicago probably re may recognize from his film work, including like Men in Black, but who is a Chicago stage legend and who Actors' Equity named or like called or said was the oldest working actor in the country. And he was 99 when he passed away and he was continuing to work into his late 90s, I think. He and B.J. Jones and David Mamet were working on a two-hander short play together uh, as recently as the last couple of years. And so it was nice that for our in, in memoriam for him, B.J. Jones and David David Mamet were able to, to submit some thoughts on Mike Nussbaum and the impact he's had on Chicago and the community at large. Yeah, yeah that was a good piece. I, I forgot to mention that we had a couple other memoriams. Uh, Richard Pilbro, the uh, designer producer, who uh, who died after a long storied career, and also Robin Brion, who was a Toronto uh, critic. Uh, we had a memorial for him. So um, I want to point out uh, the reason that the Iron it's Irondale, which is a, a Brooklyn space behind me. I'm going there on Sunday to see Terce, 
think I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, Heather Christian's new piece based on her sort of, I guess, a secular version of a, a Catholic ceremony. I don't know. I, I'm not Catholic. I don't know what, what it's all about, but I'm going to go see it. And it's part of the Prototype Festival, which is one of the many festivals that take over New York or many venues in New York every January. And so I'm really excited to have with us today a festival expert, Helen Shaw, critic at The New Yorker, one of two theater critics there. Helen, why don't you come on and give us give us some words about this. Hi. How's it going? Hi. <laughs> Hello to you both. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about, uh, are, are you, I think the Under the Radar officially started last week. Mm -hmm. These other festivals are kicking off. Do you do the full the full immersion, the full plunge into as much as you can see and just schedule be damned? Yeah, it's it is the um the sacred job of everyone in New York between Christmas and New Year's is getting out like some crazy, you know, like the red yarn and the pins and the post-it notes and the pictures of artists so that you can kind of make the murder board of how you're going to get to everything. Um, it is, I have, it, it's a little <laughs> disappointing in some ways because we've lost a bunch of festivals over the years, as you know, Coil is gone. And so is American Realness, which was a really great festival. So it used to be harder than it is to, to see, um, well, I mean, I'm not seeing everything. I'm definitely not seeing everything. I'm missing a lot of great stuff, but uh, it's easier than it was to kind of feel as though you're taking a good crack at it. And did you, so you, you're, um, how, how do you feel about the under the radar revival? Do you feel like it's, I mean, it's coming back, it's a little smaller and it's also at many different venues. You can't just go to one place and hop around. I mean, I was actually thinking about this because I was just watching this morning and live tweeting partially. I was live tweeting it so that I would keep watching. You know, it was like a good way to sort of stay on discipline. Mm -hmm. The Under the Radar Symposium keynote addresses and uh, a lot and every single keynote, of course, mentioned the fact that they had been dropped by the public in June and that they had had to scramble to sort of uh, make this difficult, big, unwieldy festival without um, without the the home where they had been for uh, more than a dozen years. So uh, I was thinking about that as everyone brought it up. And in a funny way, or not a funny way, but in a strange way, it, it is actually now turned into the COIL Festival. COIL mm. was a festival that, um, as it then was, PS122 ran when it was in exile because its space was being renovated. And so the then curator slash artistic director, Vallejo Gantner, had sort of already created this great big network of collaborating spaces um, for a theater festival in exile. And so it, it sort of, and then it died when Coyle was was um, ended by the, by the next administration at PS. Uh, and But it was there to be revived again. So, you know, oh. you're going to Abrams, you're going to uh, familiar spaces uh, a lot of the time. So, you know, I mean, one thing dies so that the next thing can live um, horribly. <laughs> it is small this year. It is notably small this year, but it is, I think, everything expensive and everything international is pretty small this year. I wanted to ask what do you have if any highlights that you've seen so far or that you're looking forward to specifically in this fest in this festival season. Well, um I am there's some shows that I had seen sort of in regular time 
-hmm. speaking of the church calendar. And they were uh, shows I'm excited to see again. There's one called Deep Darkness, which is a dance theater piece. Uh, by Lisa Fagan and Lena Engelstein, Stein, Steen, um, which is in the Live Artery Festival, which happens through New York Live Arts, which is a dance organization. Um, and it's tremendous. I saw it before and it was just, oh my God, fantastic. Um, and really messy and food being thrown around with abandon. It was just absolutely my speed. Um, I'm excited. Uh, I have a problem tonight, which is that hopefully none of the press agents are walking, watching because I've basically triple booked myself for tonight so <laughs> that I can kind of make the decision at the last moment for where I'm going to go. Uh, wow. But one of those <laughs> options is a show I've seen already called um, House is Not a Home by Niall Harris, which is just amazing, really disturbing, really sad um, piece, very, really genuinely upsetting uh, piece of work. So I'm excited to see that again, although again, maybe I won't. Uh, and I am going to the Heather Christian show you just talked about tomorrow morning at nine, which is oh, yeah. when, you know, you would actually, um, Thursday is three. So it's the third hour of the day at 9am. So I'm excited. Oh, I to see, see that's that. the, the thinking there. Yeah. It's, um, it's some sort of, it's based on a mass of some kind, right? Or the breviary or I don't know. I don't know. It is. She's she's kind of working her way through sort of sacred calendar, you know, okay. ideas. Um, well, I'm, yeah. So no, there's. Okay. I mean, really, everything is worth seeing. I, I would not. They're all <laughs> my favorite children. Great. I I did want to just segue to ask you a little bit about since you've been to New Yorker. I think we talked about this. I think you told me, and I don't want to talk out of school here, but did. Your goal was just to try to see the get them to cover everything. You want to see everything. I know that you are a maximalist in your theater going as much as you can be and I just wonder how how how's that going for you they're, they're trying to balance the big the big openings the off-broadway and the tiny weird experimental stuff that you just love well I mean there's uh you know it is uh, a magazine with a history and it is not even though I am a particularly grubby you know Time Out New York trained um, theater rat, it is a little difficult to, to drag something so kind of storied and magisterial towards the sort of what I think of as daily coverage. Mm -hmm. um, so no, I have definitely not succeeded in getting us to cover everything, not even close. Um, looking at the March schedule, we are about to fall even further short than normal. Um, we do not cover stuff online, which is good. We mm -hmm. have, um, we are doing a little bit better with being timely. So our pieces come out at least within the week that they open, as opposed to just waiting to come out when the physical magazine comes out. So, you know, I feel very strongly that the thing that's missing is um, the that old newspaper energy that, that we, you and I, <laughs> are old enough to remember that kind yeah. of uh, scramble and uh, all of the, you know, my favorite part of my career uh, when I was making, I think a maximum of like $4,000 a year writing theater criticism was when I was at Time Out and the Village Voice still existed. And we were just in this like no holds barred, incredibly bitter rivalry, um, which was all about like who could discover the show that the other magazine didn't even know existed. And I mean, it was it was a fantastic um, 
it was so good for the scene to have that mm -hmm. much um uh like competition over the right yeah. to cover it so right. anyway that's what i'm what i really want to do is basically i want to start beef between the new yorker and new york magazine <laughs> so that the new yorker will feel like oh man new york magazine got to that show how did we not get there but i'll let you know if i succeed i love <laughs> it so i love far. it because yeah like New York Magazine, like like New York Magazine, you've got two critics there. You've got you and Vincent Cunningham, and they mm. have they've got two Sarah Holdren and um, Jackson so Perry. So, and you were formerly there, so you're you know there's a the turf war. All the ingredients for a turf war are there. Yeah, you know, if the, I didn't, if I didn't, if we just didn't love each other so much, we we need right. yeah, we need more. I need more anger. Meaner critics, more. In the, right? Right. We need yeah. meaner critics. We're all too nice, right? <laughs> I don't think most artists think so, but I was going to say, don't put that on the Facebook live, <laughs> edit that out of the Facebook live. You can do that. Right. You can live edit. And we can. Yeah. Uh, to zoom out a little bit and thinking about that March schedule you mentioned, I'm curious as you look ahead at the, the calendar, like outside of the festivals, what are the, what are some shows you're most looking forward to or some, some artists you're most looking forward to seeing this season? Okay, so I'm going to have to look at my own. So if my eyes get a little weird, it's because I'm having to look at my own schedule because I am, I have a goldfish memory, uh, but it works in looking forward as well. So I have no idea. I have no, I have no memory of any show happening uh, <laughs> or any show being about to happen. Oh, well, even before March. So in February, oh, no. Just look at the schedule. So Between Two Knees is coming to PAC NYC. Bark of Millions, which is the new Taylor Mac show, is coming to BAM. Um, Darko Tresniak, who is one of my top five directors, is doing Russian Troll Farm for Vineyard. Mm. Oh, God, this is awful. We're going to die. This is um new show at new we're gonna we're gonna die is coming too no just kidding yeah, right, yeah, exactly oh and then my favorite show of last year well one of my favorite shows that's whatever uh is called on set with theta Barra, which is a one person show written for or i don't know if it was written for him but performed by david greenspan who is one of my all-time peak artists and all of that is like opening in the same week and I didn't even list half of them. The Phil, there's a Philip Howes play, which Bushwick Star is doing at Jack. It's, anyway, all of those would be things I would say are, you you cannot be a theater person in New York without seeing all of those. Um, and then other things I'm particularly looking forward to, let's see, let's just have a little scroll. Illinois, which I think you will already be talking to people about, is yes. sort of the most... Um, delicious uh, set of names on a on a program I did not see it at Bard so I'm going in completely you know without any knowledge that's going to be at the, the Park Avenue Am Am Armory I think in March yeah but you said Jack um Jack. Oh, the one at Jack is the Philip Howes play which is oh. called Self-Portraits Deluxe okay and then I'm also pretty jazzed about the fact that Michael R. Jackson has a new musical, um, Teeth, which will be at Playwrights. At Playwrights Horizons, yeah. Yeah, I've been hearing about that. Yeah. So yeah. I, I have to ask the question that young critics like myself, I'm going to throw myself in that bucket, of always wonder, how are you making decisions about what you actually wind up seeing and writing about? There, Like you said, there's so much 
and there's only so much time and so much space. So how are you making those choices? Well, the first and most useful thing is to assume that you're going to see seven shows a week and, um, and that it, it helps uh, <laughs> if you already don't think about there being any um, gaps because you, at least then you'll know you did your best, you know, like you, the, the, the FOMO of missing something is already is so excruciating um, that I feel like you just, if you, if you know that you're programming yourself to the maximum number of shows you see a week. Okay. So then within that, um, I will say a big part for me is uh, following artists who I have been following for a long time. So that David Greenspan show, for instance, now I happen to have seen it last year. I happen to have loved it, but I feel that I have over the last 15 years invested in understanding Greenspan's methods to the point that if I missed the next piece, I would, I would feel as though I'd broken a link in a very important chain for myself. Um, and, you know, you were talking earlier on the, on the um, Zoom about in memoriams. And I recently wrote an in memoriam for Viney Burroughs, who a mm. great, um, a great actor who died at the age of 99. And so I was the great thing about writing an in memoriam is you get to talk to people who loved and worked with this person. And I have seen almost everything that Viney did for the since I have been in New York, almost pretty close but not everything. And it was everything that people were speaking about that I hadn't seen that just felt like a real dart to the soul. So my 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 highest priority is is um that kind of um taking care aspect or 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 uh <laughs> you know who will care for the harvest, but the reaper man, you know, like this, like if you are the person who's going to come in with this aggressive critical energy, then the thing that you give back is by kind of counting every sheaf, you know, you look at everything that, that people whose work you, you admire that they do. Um, that's the first one. Um, the second one is that I kind of go down and build up. So if there's a show that I miss on Broadway, say la vie, if there's a show that I miss at a theater, which I'm committed to covering or committed to loving, like Soho Rep, no, no, not acceptable. So again, like I, I in the same way that I pay attention to artists, I also try to pay attention to to venues or to to um, minds. So uh, Teresa Buchheister, who is the uh, curator, artistic director out at the Brick, um, if Teresa says you should see this show again, I won't miss it because that's a mind that I've learned to kind of pay attention to. Hmm. And then, right, so, yeah. yeah. And then I just refuse to see. Well, anyway, I won't tell you what I refuse. To see. Oh, wow. Okay. There's, there's just some no goes. I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, so it's, it's, it's finding like, I think the advice that theater focus up and get is find your tribe, find the people you want to work with, but it sounds like find the people who, Whose taste you not not just the people you want to watch, but the people whose taste you you admire and follow the chain of recommendations that way, right? Yeah, I mean, it used it was easier obviously when there were more people sharing those opinions. It was easier before the decline of Twitter, to be honest, to get a right. sense of. Um, 
man, that sort of, you know, popcorn level, like creation that you that you would need to pay attention to. But I think critics are always, for me, um, the, the anxiety that drives me has to do with aging, is that I think that it's, that it's, because I remember being a young, hungry critic and thinking that critics who were older than I was were out of touch. And mm -hmm. so I remember that, but now that I'm sitting here at 47 and sort of asking myself, well, are you out of touch? I don't even know how to work out if I'm out of, you know, so there's this terrible anxiety of, of not just missing shows or missing things, but missing entire movements or, mm -hmm. or gestures. So um, that's not a great uh, response. I'm sorry. No, no, that's a, <laughs> a, a telling response and interesting to me. Explains terror. a lot about what makes you great. <laughs> Rank terror. That's what it is. Uh, I I also have one more question because we're you're already kind of giving great advice, so I kind of <laughs> want to ask as well as our, our theme for our upcoming issue of training. What's one key piece of advice you'd give to a young a young writer who may not have gotten into theater writing or theater criticism, but like is interested in it? What's one piece of advice you'd give to them starting out? So you said run away. No, go on. No, I would never say that. I no, good. I would never say that. I, you know, I fully lost a job that I applied for during the pandemic. Um, when I sort of lost my mind slightly and thought, I know what I'll do is I'll apply to teach at, at a university, a very fancy university that has an arts journalism department. And in the interview, they said, What class would you add to the curriculum here? And I said, I would add a required 100 level class in criticism for required for every freshman. And they were like, oh, it was so nice to talk to you. Uh, you we're having trouble hearing you. You know, the feed cuts out. Like, I mean, it was so, because it's so bananas. It's so, how, no one's making any money. No one can do this. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it isn't a profession. It's gone. It's gone as a profession. We simply, you know, we have to look at what is actually in front of us. However, I think that actually what that means is that everybody should be writing all the time, constantly. Um, if it's not a profession, great. You don't have to wait for a job. And so the, um, the thing that I learned the most, there were, there were a couple of key places. I was so fortunate. I had, to my mind, I had the perfect training in my career, was that the very first job I had was under um, Jeremy McCarter at the New York Sun. And Jeremy edited me would then send my pieces back to me. So I read what another critic thought of what I was writing before it was sent on to my editor. So number one, find people who you trust to tell you whether or not you're being clear because getting your emotions across is not hard. Getting the plot of Angels in America across is hard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do that is so valuable as having someone say, I was confused by what you meant here. Second thing is the next place I worked after that was Time Out. And Time Out had, <laughs> while I was there, the reviews that appeared in the magazine were 210 words long, uh, originally 280, then down to 250, then down, you know, they, they kind of kept squinching. Um, and learning to write short was basically grad school for me. I went to grad school. What did I learn there? Let's move that to one side. It was learning to cut 110 words from a 350 word review and realizing that I didn't lose any content when I did that. 
it was truly, truly, truly useful because you understand writing and the show so much better when you think about what you can lose. So, you know, there's a guy named John DeVore who has started writing online these like 150 word uh, movie reviews. Uh, that giving yourself a kind of a discipline where you say, can I write a review, a useful, a valid, uh, a worthy of surviving review of something in, you know, start with 120 words, you know, or, or really start with the easy stuff. Start at 800, move it to 400, take it down to 250 and then 210. And once you can do that every week, three times, you're a theater critic. It's no problem. It's amazing. I have advice myself what i need that advice myself 100 i need that yeah i feel like i feel like that that is how you know i wasn't a timeout but i did i did a lot of i was at backstage wets and other places and edit, editing other people's reviews and doing my own and there's just something about the, the 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 muscles that develops that just never left me and i i do i think someone like jr you still write a lot of reviews right do you still write reviews for the tribune when they come up yeah they come up okay but like again i'm not despairing that that you know i don't want to sound like the old guy like we used to do it this way and everyone needs to learn the way we did it but like i i do i do wonder where that that kind of concision um and clarity uh how how that can be learned in the new i guess maybe twitter was one way people were learning it i'm not sure no but, because twitter no. you didn't need to be understood no, that's right. If, if if you said, because there was a little movement, I remember where we were talking about like Twitter as theater reviews, theater reviews on Twitter or whatever. There was like yeah, a little, yeah. and you guys wrote a piece on it. And yes. and it, it, my feeling about that was, uh, uh, well, I think it's a type of writing, but I don't think mm -hmm. it's what I think of as criticism because right. the concision in criticism is not about a, a quick burn. It's about actually if you have to tell the person reading enough about the play that they can judge your judgment of it within the critical text right mm -hmm. you need to give them both you need to give them both your you know because we're subjective you're going to give them your subjective opinion but you must also be so good and so clear that you can tell them enough about the show that they can think to themselves in their secret brain oh maybe maybe she really missed the boat on that. Wow, she just reviewed, she told me enough about um, Prayer for the French Republic. Uh, and she said she had a lot of problems with it, but I can see the way she's describing those problems as things I would think of as a strength. I might mm -hmm. like this show, I'm gonna go see it. Right. And that's, you in Twitter, Twitter is rhetorical. It is persuasive, right? right. You don't build a cage or, or, or sorry, not a cage, but like a skeleton of something so that people can judge you judging. It's just there to shout. Sorry, I feel right. Right, no, I, yeah, I think that, I think that's probably true. I think it's also not to, a, it's not a wide or lasting audience you're looking for on Twitter necessarily. It's sort of narrow casting and whoever comes on board. Um, I think we wanna to get to our, our interview with, um, with Justin Jackie. So I just wanna just close by asking you, Helen, since you were sort of on this topic, like wither criticism, what is the what is the future? You wrote a beautiful piece for us some years ago. I encourage people to look up the uh, the, uh, the bestiary, critics bestiary, talking about different kinds of critics. And as you wrote it, you confessed that you felt like you were writing a memorial for kinds of writing because there wasn't such a variety out there. But you know, there's lots of voices out there. There's people with opinions. 
feel like people are looking for them, um, including your own. So send us out on a hopeful note here. <laughs> uh, hope on command. Um, I, uh, I teach still, uh, and I teach undergrads and, um, I have them write, you will be surprised to know, criticism of stuff. Uh, of course I do. I'm constantly telling them that I want them to be theater critics and, um, they find it so easy. They find it so easy. It's every other part of academic writing for them is very difficult. Um, I mean, the plagiarism squabbles we've just seen in the public uh, sphere. Uh, the reason why all that happened is the terrible fear that we we engender in students about borrowing ideas and borrowing language. Hmm. And that I will tell you, I've never had a problem with uh, reviews because it, it comes from this different wellspring and it comes from a place that has no anxiety in it. It's just so, they're so thrilled to share their thoughts about something. And sometimes I can say, I need you to write this criticism with a more diagnostic eye, like what would fix it? Or I want mm. you to write something which just dives into a specific aspect of performance because you're all training as performers. And they never have a problem. Students who haven't turned in anything on time, you know what I mean? Students who have sent me more pathetic emails about their like the reasons why they can't turn stuff in, the criticism always flows in. And hmm. so I think that is the thing that I think is sort of the savior of both criticism and of the theater itself, macro, is that it's such a pleasure to do. That hmm. nothing like lack of money, lack of opportunity, lack of outlet, mm -mm, doesn't matter. It's so fun to do. People will just keep doing it. Helen, that is great. I was thinking the same. You, you brought it home to theater too. I feel like it. There's, 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 there seems there's, there's no danger that theater will go away or criticism question of which theaters and critics and jobs will go away is a whole other thing. Right. But I think the art form in both cases is, is going to survive. Just, that's just business. Yeah. Well, and that course is what we all get, it's what we all get into it for. Right. Supposedly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank Helen, you. Such a pleasure. I hope to run into you at the theater soon. Thank you. Maybe Take tomorrow care. morning at 9am. Maybe so. Bye. Take care. Um, what a delight. Um, so another delight is in store for you. Uh, I'm going to introduce the uh, the folks who are going to go to the recorded interview we did uh, with Justin Peck, uh, who's the resident choreographer for New York City Ballet. He won the 2018 Tony for choreographing Carousel on Broadway. Also choreographed a little film called West Side Story. Um, He's uh, currently represented off-Broadway by Buena Vista Social Club at the Atlantic Theater, which he co-choreographed with his wife, Patricia Delgado. Uh, he's created more than 50 dance works, classical pop composers, directors, and filmmakers. Um, Jacqueline Silby's Drury, you might have heard of, won the Pulitzer for Fairviews. Her other plays include We Are Proud to Present a Presentation, and many other words I won't say. It's a long title. Mary Seacole, and Really, which we published in American Theater. We have them on today to talk about the thing they've gotten together to adapt Sufjan Stevens' epic 2005 album, Illinois, into a dance theater piece that premiered at Bard's Fisher Center last summer, against performances at Chicago Shakespeare Theater on January 28th, and as we talked about with Helen, will be at the Parker Avenue Armory in March. But is it a musical, and why is it called now called Illinois? We will find out what they have to say. Enjoy Justin and Jackie. All right. Well, thanks, Justin and Jackie, for joining us and chatting about your new show. Um, before we get into the weeds of everything, I would love to hear 
from your voices who have spent so much time with this, the elevator pitch for the show. Like, what is what do you tell folks, your friends, your family, what you're working on right now? How do you describe the show? That's a really good question. <laughs> and part of what uh, makes this show exciting and also challenging is that it's not uh, the most conventional and easy to package experience. I think it's a very unique experience in its own right. Um, I guess like by default, I would call it a musical. Uh, it has all the elements of a musical in it. Um, song, dance, lyrics, uh, poetry, um, uh, storytelling, kind of uh, narrative arc to it. Um, but it's it's all kind of bent and turned on its head and looked at in a slightly different way in terms of how we're uh, how we've been making this and presenting it. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a show that, uh, that we have been exploring from a place of, um, of wanting to honor this great album, uh, what I consider to be an album of a generation, one of the great albums of the last 20 years. Um, and also, um, kind of, uh, the the self-given task for us has been is there a theatrical arc to um to engage with in in regards to this album as well so those are the kind of the main things in play for us um as we've been making this and jackie i don't know if you have anything you want to add to that or yeah i mean i feel like you said it all but um i guess when I've been talking about it with family and friends, um, a lot of my friends were already familiar with the album and are just excited about the idea of getting to experience it in a different way. And so um, I feel like what I tell people that I've been doing is like basically having conversations with this choreographer and director who I really admire and um, helping him, yeah, weave an, a, a, a narrative arc on top of an album, which is sort of a crazy and sort of experimental project to some degree, which has been really exciting. We keep talking about the the album, Illinois, and I'm kind of curious how both of you first came in touch with the album. It seems like both of you have a history that with the album that predates working on this particular show. So I'm curious if you could tell us your first interactions with the album or your, your memories of the album itself. Well, I, um, yeah, I remember when this album came out, um, it like sort of like took my friend group by storm. And um, it's like, I have a really specific memory of dating my then boyfriend, now husband, who had just gotten into a master's program in Chicago. And we were, I was um, moving from New York to Chicago to live with him and like in the U-Haul we had like the CD player, like into the like um, cigarette lighter charger thing, like the way that you like had to like jerry rig stuff to hear music that you wanted to play um, before iPhones really. But um, like, I would just remember driving to Chicago, listening to the song Chicago and feeling like my life was starting and it was this like really epic experience. And um, yeah, it's been really surreal <laughs> to sort of like, see another version of that 
um, imagined theatrically. It's it's crazy. Yeah, and for me, um, I first heard the album, I want to say I was like 17 years old, um, and I had just moved to New York City, and uh, I have a memory of kind of like listening to it in my in my dorm room and just being so struck by what this album was and how it was so difficult to categorize and that it felt like it 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 had just when you thought it was like one thing it switched tracks and it became something else and just had like such epic scale and also like such intimacy and and storytelling inside of it and I was really moved by it personally and then I um I discovered that so many other people connected with it on a personal level so it had this like universal appeal to it um or way into it but and yet it still feels like um incredibly specific and personal and so I just kept for me I just kept listening to this album um for for the last like almost 20 years now and just discovering more and more about it with each listen and, and there's so many layers to it and there's it's so dense in a lot of ways um and uh, both both like musically and lyrically and also and also in terms of just like the content that Sufian packs into this so um so it's been a uh um a long exploration for me and then of course like getting to uh to meet Sufian and start working with him um in my early 20s uh also influenced kind of my experience both with that album and with his music in general right and you did a couple pieces with him already that was the year of the rabbit and uh everywhere i go was that called everywhere you go everywhere we go everywhere yeah we go. yeah those were like two big projects we did together we made it together at new york city ballet mm -hmm. um and we've done we've done a few others since then uh, two more ballets for New York City Ballet, one called the Decalogue and one called Principia, and then one for Houston Ballet called Reflections. Okay. So there's been a long uh, standing collaboration that I've had with Sufian, and I really do consider him to be one of uh, my closest and most important collaborators in my career so far. So. That's great. Well, I want to get I want to get into the to the content and the layers a bit in a second, but I wanted to first ask about the gestation of this show, I, I've, I've, of course, we've read a little bit about it, but you, you keep, you, when you, when you got into this record, did you key into it as a, as a dancer? Did you hear dance in it? And I wonder also if you could talk about, I think what I read is that you sort of wore him down over the years saying, this should be a show. Like, I want to, I want to, I want to do this as a show. And eventually said, okay, you could do it. And tell me a little bit about both of those. First of all, where you heard dance in this music and then how you got him to let you <laughs> make this show. Yeah, I think like going back to when I was 17 year old me in a dorm room and just trying to sort of find my own voice as a maker, I just I remember thinking like this guy really has an innate ability to write music for dance and also to write music for storytelling. 
Um, and a lot of the music, especially in Illinois, feels theatrical. If you listen to the arrangements, it almost borderlines on like show tunes moments, but in like the best way possible. Um, so that made a huge impression on me when I was um, just coming up. And I think that's why I kept my finger on the pulse of what Supian was doing. And I, I noticed that he, every time he released some piece of music, you would think that he was moving in one direction and then with his next release, he would pivot and go somewhere else. You know, he would release like an electronic song cycle and then suddenly he released like a sweeping uh, orchestral score about mm -hmm. the BQE and then just kept kind of rerouting. Um, and I love that just like exploration, that, that journey as an artist that he's always been on. <clears throat> and so... I guess like that's how I, and then sort of um, fortuitously we crossed paths and we began a process of working together. And um, I've always felt like his music is the most inspiring for me personally and kind of like draws the most out of me as a dance maker. Um, there's something about it that I, I can't quite put into words, but um, it just, it brings out all kinds of ideas um, in terms of how I think about uh, movement through space and also storytelling. And um, and so I, I just, I always felt like Illinois would be a great sort of basis to like build something bigger off of. And through the years of getting to collaborate with Sufyan, I want to say like around the time of making our second ballet together. So this was when we were making Everywhere We Go, which premiered back in 2014. I started to just plant this idea and um, and ask this question, like, is there something to do with Illinois? Do you wanna, is it something you would, you know, this is me speaking to Sufian, is it something that you would be interested in pursuing together? And he's, he he would kind of deflect it, um, acknowledge it, but kind of kick the can down the road every time we spoke. And I think I I was just very persistent about it. And so eventually, like six or seven years later of me asking, um, he, he turned to me and was just like, "Okay, I see that you're serious about this. Um, I want to support it. I want." you to um to have a journey with this you have my blessing but um uh, but i think for sufian it was he feels like it was written from almost like a lifetime in his past and i think he's a very like forward moving forward thinking artist and i think for him to go back and um really pour himself into that music again is not something that interested him so much creatively um, so he's always been kind of a, a friend and a cheerleader of the project, um, and there when, when we need him, but, um, but he's been relatively hands-off and it's, it's very generous of him, I think, to give us the creative space to interpret this, uh, this incredible score and make it into something that's sort of our own. Um, so that's kind of the story about how we got here. So in right. a way, it's, it feels very full circle for me in regards to the entirety of my career and um, in my adult life to get to interact with it. 
Well, that brings me to Jackie. Then I wonder where, how how did how did you come on board, Jackie? And and also I want to know what do you do? I know there's not dialogue in the in the play. That's there's just it's lyrics and songs and movement. And I wonder what, what does a playwright do <laughs> with, with this material? <laughs> what you still talk about layered layered layering narrative arc over it, and I. You know, there's a lot of narrative strands in it. I don't, I don't, I feel a narrative arc when I listen to the record, but I don't, I can't quite parse it. So, could you tell me what what your first how 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 you came on board and then what what you've been doing? Yeah, I guess I um, it's weird. I was thinking about this the other day. I I've been I don't have a dancerly bone in my body. I didn't even do like dance classes when I was like a little child. Um, but I've been really inspired by and like engaged um professionally in dance for a while like um when i was like a young person in new york like big dance theater was like my like go to like um and like in my um any b person would do these performance lectures where she talked about um movement in a way that like totally blew my mind and so and weirdly i've worked with choreographers in my own work a couple of times and so I um when this became like an opportunity to just like meet with Justin just like have a conversation about what a collaboration between us would look like I I was super excited about that and um I think because like I just find the process of watching dancers learn choreography to be really inspiring um it just it feels like um you're able to, in a, in a really tangible way, see someone thinking with their body. Um, and I, just as a, as a performance person, as a theater person, it's, it's uh, a really engaging thing to see. And so I do feel like um, most of um, the work that Justin and I are doing is like outside of the rehearsal room. We cool. um, have been sort of passing a document back and forth, thinking about, um, like I'm not telling him. I think that this there should be a jump here, or like, <laughs> like obviously, but it's, it sort of is um, thinking about the characters that we have and how to um, figure out a story and an arc that is so um, precise and clear that it can be communicated to an audience without words. Mm -hmm. um, and a, a lot of the times. Um, or Justin's been talking about it sometimes as sort of almost a silent movie in parts of it. And I think that it does. Um, we are borrowing from those like those uh, traditions of gesture and um, uh, eye contact as like conveying a lot of meaning. And so um, we've it's it's crazy to um, how much because for me it's like both dance and music um, are able to access emotions that. I, as a playwright, feel very cheesy accessing. Like, if you just, like, talk about how in love you are, it's like, well, but if you sing about it or if yep. you have a movement that it, like, that it is able to harness that sense of, um, like, when your heart feels like it's soaring, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's beautiful. But when I say my heart feels like it's soaring, <laughs> totally grossed out. So um, it's been really fun to... Um, put together a story that I wouldn't be able to on my own um, in the medium that I uh, have an art practice in. Yeah, I've heard, I've talked to a lot of playwrights who are, are, are yeah, feel the same way about music. It's like, it's like a sh almost a shortcut somehow to, to emotions that, they, again, they can't 
they couldn't express or would feel cheesy putting into words. I wonder specifically, and this maybe is a question for both of you, but maybe you could start, Jackie, how you honed in on who's actually gonna be on stage. It's, it's, a, it's a, a record that references a lot of characters, a lot of settings, but in a sort of storytelling way. It's not like we're gonna go back to the Chicago exposition of 1893 or whatever. Uh, we're not gonna go back to the Underground Railroad and excavate the Civil War skeletons and all the, the UFOs. There's a, there's a lot on this record, basically. <laughs> Carl Sandburg. Um, how did you decide who, who who's the story's about and who's going to tell the tell these stories? How did you create the characters? That was really all Justin. I feel like okay. in our meeting, I also was like, I don't understand how you turn this into a musical. <laughs> and um, I think that he was like, there's a group of hikers around a campfire telling stories, mm -hmm. and like before seeing any. Um, before seeing anything else, just that image of um, it sort of clicked with the the sound of the original album, which is so um, Sufjan's voice is so tender in parts mm -hmm. and um, so sweet in parts that that like imagining the sort of like hushed tones in the wilderness at night, it like made theatrical sense for how you could convey an album that feels that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it really was just about, um, I don't know, putting the stories in the right order and making sure that the stories had a center to them. And that I feel like has been the work that we've been doing. But I, I, I do think that um, Justin had this initial inspiration and that we've just been trying to authentically follow that initial impulse. Hmm. Yeah, and I think the the idea of the campfire is like a framing device for this experience was a big um, unlocking for how we could tell this story. Um, that that's been, and also yeah, like Jackie was saying, like aesthetically, like the whole album also has this kind of like DIY campfire sing along feel to it, and so aesthetically it works uh, quite well in that way, and. Um, using that as a jumping off point, we're able to uh, to present this experience that includes both moments of short story campfire fables and also like more long term, longer arc coming of age narratives that um, that feel very true to the poetry of what Sufian uh, was writing here as a young person. Um, and then the other thing I'll just say is that, like, I feel like I could easily have just turned this into a show that's kind of like a review, you know what I mean? Like a series of dances to these songs, um, which would have been exciting. But I, I think that there was um, an instinct here to to search deeper and to um, to put in the work to to find something that feels like a bit more narratively satisfying. Um, and moving for an audience um, and 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 somewhat personal. I think like a lot of the storytelling, I, I won't say it's like autobiographical, but it, it is semi-autobiographical and like that it pulls a lot from uh, my own experiences as a young person sort of coming of age. And then also the experiences of those around, uh, around me, those that I love around me. Um, and that also extends to Jackie. And I think like Jackie, um, there's like that whole Mike Nichols thing about like, you need a buddy to like, to like make the thing. And I feel like Jackie's become 
that that buddy or like that co-pilot that we're able to kind of like sit here together and pilot this thing and and through trial and error and through you know making mistakes and then um, responding to those uh, we're able to be in a real process and continue to evolve this thing and um, even though there are no spoken lines in the show there's a there's a lot written um, in in the uh, you know behind the scenes mm -hmm. for us to reference like we have we have a a, a real story arc that um, that's a living document that we continue to own and um, and and change and um, and de develop so it really is kind of like writing a script for a movie that doesn't have any spoken word in it that's what that's the closest thing that it feels like i think for us um and there's there there are a lot of rules in place in terms of like structure and also like how much the album can really bend to accommodate that and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and those are decisions we have to make to make it all work right right i i do think of libretto's music musical book as closer to a screenplay i think a lot of there's a lot of misconceptions about i remember i was telling jr earlier that when Hamilton was nominated for book, people are like, there's no book, it's all singing. It's like, no, the book is the structure. The book is the, it's like, a, again, the screenplay, like an action movie has yeah. a screenplay, even though if this whole scenes don't have dialogue, right? So the, it's it's the structure. I did notice, Jackie, there was a, a wonderful uh, excerpt in the playbill at Bard uh, of like a journal. And I wonder, mm -hmm. was is, is that like the kind of writing that that's sort of informs the work or is that sort of, written to order for the program or like it, it's sort of from the character I think Henry is the name of the of the sort of lead character that you've created for this yeah that that was um I think this like document that Justin and I have been passing back and forth at, like um has uh is does feel like sort of like a poetic screenplay <laughs> even though it's like a contradiction of terms but um the program note was um born of this impulse to want to have there be some um We've, because we have done so much talking in the room with the dancers about um, the stories they're telling, about their characters, about how they feel about the stories that they're telling at different points in their telling of them. And there was an impulse to sort of um, let the audience in on that process a little bit. So it was like writing um, a little bit from the perspective of this central character whose coming of age we get to witness. Yeah. Right, right. And speaking of that that world premiere run last year, I'm curious how you've seen the show change since then, and how how your perception of it or how the show itself has changed. We've noticed that the the title of the show has also changed from Illinois to Illinois, uh, which for folks who don't know, the cover of the album says, "Come on, feel the Illinois." I believe it is, but the album is titled Illinois. So I'm curious how that decision came about as well. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy over that title, right? It's like people feel very uh, passionately about it. It's I've I've come across fans who like insist that the album is called Illinois because that is how it's like written, and yet officially the title is Illinois. So it became this thing of like it could go um, either way, but I think like just the 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 fact that we're extending this into something that although it works in tandem with the album, it's like its own new thing. And so I think by adding the E, it's just like, it's almost like 
continuing from like left to right with the writing of all of this as we work. So it just felt like appropriate to add that in and, and maybe just like differentiated ever so slightly from the album proper. Um, and it also just like, it separates the experience slightly from the state of Illinois by adding the E, I think, because it's, it's, um, even though we're, we're thinking of this being like set in the state of Illinois, um, it could sort of be anywhere in America, I think like that's the, that's the specific place, but it's, it can also be related to in different ways. Um, so that helps us a little bit. Um, what was the first part? Sorry, the, I got really fired up about the title there. What was the first part? Of the <laughs> oh, I love it. I, I was just curious how the show itself has changed since oh, like, yeah, yeah. One, what you're looking to incorporate as it sets down in Chicago. Yeah. Um, well, the thing about the version we presented at the Bard Fisher Center in the Hudson Valley last summer was we, we were kind of internally with the creative team, we were kind of thinking that is like, the first iteration or almost like a workshop version of it, even though it was a fully realized production that had a, had a set and had lighting and had live performance and music and costumes and all the elements. It was really our first time to put the show up and look at it and have, um, have a slightly low key audience present to, to be able to respond to it. Um, so we learned a lot from getting to view it in that way and experience it in that way and feel the energy. And I think there there were things that surprised us in a beautiful way and then other things that um, we sort of wish we had more of a preview process to, to refine what it was and um, certain things that had to do with like the rhythm of the performance and, um, and, and there's a lot of, there's like many, many tweaks we've made to further clarify the storytelling um and to just create a more satisfying arc for the audience um and then another big aspect of how the shows continue to evolve is we've gone back to the drawing board a little bit and have reworked the scenic design for the show so while it is still incorporating some of the original elements that we really liked about the production at bard fisher center um this show feels like it's it is more authentic to the story we're telling and um in terms of like the architecture and yeah just like this the spatial composition it's um i think doing us doing like a better job of um of communicating what this show is and how it's told to an audience so i won't give too much away for the, the specifics of that, but um, but I think it's going to work so wonderfully um, in, in the Chicago Shakespeare Theater space and and also when it comes back to New York to be performed at the Park Avenue Armory. Just want to give a breath in case, Jack, you had anything you'd like to add to that? Oh, um, I guess I, I learned so much from the um, from the production we had over the summer. Um, I think for my, myself personally, I, I think I came into it a little bit naive about um, how to present something on that scale. Like the, just like walking into the theater on the first day of tech, I was like astounded at the size of it. And um, I'm just used to working in much smaller spaces. And it was like when we 
the very first time we put the show in front of an audience, that was like our opening. So as Justin was saying, we didn't really have a preview process. So when people like clapped, I wasn't expecting like audience applause. Like it just like, there were so many things that we didn't um, totally get to see how the show was functioning with people. And so um, that was uh, really educational. And the, the, there's so much about the, um, the dance that is so intimate and beautiful and seeing it in a rehearsal room where you're so close to the performers, you see um, all of these minute gestures that I, I found so moving. And I was afraid that putting it into a large space, you wouldn't get to see that the specificity of it, but um, feeling how, um, how expansive the show like it, it, it expanded to fit the space that it was in. And there's something about that that was really genuinely exciting. And um, yeah, I like, I was very happy to be wrong <laughs> about that. I love that, I love that. And then I also wanted to ask like specifically as Chicago and myself, how does it feel to be able to put the show up in Chicago, in Illinois on a, a great stage like Chicago Shakespeare? It's the best. I mean, it's like kind of the ideal thing, especially for the show. Like you said, it's so specific in um, in what it's all about. And even that anthem, I mean, that that single, that Supian Road Chicago, uh, is, it's a big anthem. I mean, you even you hear it still. You see, it's, it was on this, I think, the season finale of season one of The Bear, mm -hmm. just like, you know, almost 20 years later. And that song is still such an anthem. So um so it's also extra special i think because chicago is an exceptional theater town and an exceptional dance town so mm -hmm. there's a real appreciation for both of those things and um and this show is kind of like you know the venn diagram of both of those combined so um so i'm hoping that it's something that the audience can really connect with as well in terms of like the aesthetic and the delivery of what this is yeah, I, I was intrigued, uh, Justin, earlier when you, when we asked you for the elevator pitch and you said, you guess you would call it a musical. I know there was some talk about, I think there was a quote from Sufjan saying this, this should not be musical theater. Like there should be no jazz hands, no. And, um, but are you comfortable with saying, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about, not so much a, a, you know, academic genre question, but literally how you, in the casting and the feel of it, because I haven't heard it. I know Nathan's uh, has done the music direction, and Timo Andres has done, who is Sufjan's guy, has done the orchestrations. But I'm just wondering what this, what what this what this feels like. How would you describe? Um, it sounds like you've had an you've taken a sort of artisanal approach the way that his he did with the record. You've tried to honor that with with the, with, the, with the aesthetic. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about. Um, about as it relates to genre, but also, and this could be for both of you as well, just the ways in which this is backed into being a musical in, in a way, its own kind of musical. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that I I love musical theater. Like I, I come from a very uh, admiring place of that genre. Like I grew up going to see musicals, coming to New York, seeing everything um my my fam it was an important sort of cultural thing for my family and i to do um it's how i fell in love with dance and and art and culture so i have a it's been like a um 
a, a long education process for me to just like study musicals, learn about them, get to participate in making them. Um, and then also feel like I have strong opinions about them as well, too. But it all comes from a place of of love and knowledge, I think, for the form. Um, and the ones that have really uh, moved me the most have been the, the lesser obvious or the lesser conventional ones. Um, thinking of shows like Hedwig and the Angry Inch or um, Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk or uh, moving out that uh, Twilight Art did. Um, there's, and the list goes on and on from there, but those are the ones that really stick out in my mind over, over the years as the ones that have resonated with me. And so there is an influence uh, in that way and that I'm coming at this with. Um, so I, I am perfectly comfortable with calling this a musical um, with the thought that like a musical can be so many different things and my hope for the genre is that it continues to expand and that there's new and original ways to um, engage with that form moving forward so that that's my hope for what this show can potentially be um yeah 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 i don't know jackie if you have any thoughts about your relationship to the to the the musical or whatever that is i it it's uh I think there's a lot of misperceptions about it. I think like a, a world that can include everything from passing strange to strange loop is not this it's not not the, your grandma's musical you know again but I and again I love uh, Justin you know you've uh, sold yourself short I mean carousel West Side Story you're you're, you're not only a, a, a musical student you've, you've created great work in that in that form so in the in the classic form but Jackie I don't know if you uh if that's been your experience or you're more sort of a uh, an outsider to that and this is a new world, new world for you. Um, no, it's like I have a similar, um, or this is maybe the only case in that I can say I have a similar upbringing to Justin. In that, like, I um, came to New York and saw Broadway musicals as a kid, and we uh -huh. like, like, my mom, um, her favorite is The Phantom of the Opera, and we would uh -huh. like listen to that, like, all four discs. Um, and so, the. Um, but yeah, even Phantom is like another weird example of a musical that doesn't have that uh, sort of quality of singing that people associate with musicals. Right. There are lots of different ways for people to um, sound, hopefully, or like ways to combine music and story on stage. And so um, I, I think that this is a musical where people don't break out into song, but there is music and story all the way through. And so there um yeah it it feels um both like um this novel new thing but also it feels just like the most um relatable i hate that word but like relatable piece that of theater like i think that people that don't like musicals will enjoy the experience of watching the show and i think that people that do like musicals will enjoy the experience of watching the show and so i don't know what to call that besides relatable um right well, this is space I know well. I know, and, and I, I like as well. Um, I, I, I did want to just just touch on the question of of the the casting in terms of it's dancers and singers. Are they separate? It's like it's not like a uh, is and and are there singers that sound like Sufjan, or are they going to be bigger voices, for lack of a better word? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there there is. 
um, a kind of uh, designation of, you know, who is a musician or a singer and who mm -hmm. is kind of a onstage cast performer right. of this. And part of that had to do with wanting to be very precise with the respective crafts. Um, so, so like the biggest casting struggle, and I've felt it on many projects is like to find that person who's like, quote unquote, a triple threat, oh. right? Someone who can sing, dance and act. And always there is one of those that is like the weaker of the three. It's, it's pretty much impossible to find someone who's like on that peak level for all three of those. Um, and so we knew that with this, that it was such a uh, beloved album album and um and we wanted to deliver it with great authenticity um in a way that Sufian would be proud of it um and so so we 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 leaned into um organizing the show to uh to be able to do that and so we have um we have some musicians actually who were part of the original album recording so like someone like um shara nova is like a great singer songwriter in her own right and used to like tour and and sing backup to um to sufian when they were uh -huh. when, when they were younger is is now like one of our like guiding lights in this um production um and and then it's been arranged by, I should mention by Tim Andres, who oh. is a, an amazing composer and orchestrator. And I, I've worked with him and Sufian to, all together on ballet projects where he's scored, you know, has helped orchestrate for like 65 musicians. And so he's been a key and trusted collaborator on this to, um, to be able to take the album and, um, and allow it to expand into the space of what this musical is uh so so that's been really helpful as well um there are a few moments that where you suddenly uh have the whole uh company on stage burst out into into singing and those moments that so the, the cast and the the musicians even the musicians that don't sing and those moments just feel like super electric and surprising mm -hmm. and like when you don't really expect it and there's very few of them but um just a moment to sort of uh ignite the whole uh the whole auditorium with sound um so that's how we've been approaching this um and playing around with it too like in our process well, I'm excited to check it out when it gets to Chicago. Uh, it runs at Chicago Shakespeare Theater January 28th through February 18th. And then it has a New York Park Armory, Park Avenue Armory run March 2nd through 23rd. I think I also read that there was a planned international tour. Is that still on the table? I think we're taking it. Um, there, There's a lot of interest from uh, venues kind of around the world um but we're taking it one step at a time again just because we're we're sort of learning about it as we go um so so we'll check in kind of towards the end of our armory run and see where the next stop is for the show yeah that's amazing i know justin you also have a, another little show uh in town uh uh with with your wife and sahim uh 
Buena Vista Social Club, which people are talking about for the future. Um, Jackie, I don't know if there's anything else you that you're working on that you want to you want to mention or plug before we wrap up. Oh, I'm yeah. terrible at that, but I'm excited about Buena Vista Social Club. <laughs> well, good. Nice plug for that. <laughs> Thank you, Jackie. <laughs> I don't know how you all do what you do and keep it all going. Um, Justin, Jackie, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and for JR and for American Theater. This has been another edition of Offscript. Thanks so much. Thank you.